you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, Hebrews chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 19 of Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of the indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. This morning I want to talk to you about a better hope. A better hope. Back in the day, farmers would use a collar to harness a team of horses or mules to pull a plow or a wagon. The collar was made of leather with padding to protect the animal's neck and the forequarters of the animal so the animal would not become disabled. The collar was made with a leather strap and a buckle at the top, and the bottom was rounded to provide comfort to the animal. When the harness was put on the collar, it was designed to get the most even pull from the animals and the least amount of pressure on the horse. If that equipment shifted, the horse would develop a sore And then the animal would become so stiff-necked that you could not turn the horse one way or another. The horse would only go one way. Let me just say that sometimes, as people, we get the same way. Sometimes we refuse to adjust to situations when we know we should, and often our reasoning for not doing it is because of a custom or a tradition. And we've become stiff-necked. Instead of doing what God wants to be done, too many of our churches are still stuck in the remember wins, as I talked about last week, or the 
used to be's or the we never done it that way before's. That's their mentality. In fact, many of our churches are not stuck in the 90's, but instead we are stuck in the 50's. I'm not saying that all tradition is bad. But, when tradition takes a place of progression or holds one back from faithfully following the Lord, it is bad. Listen to what J.I. Packer said. All Christians are at once beneficiaries and victims of tradition. Beneficiaries who receive nurturing truth and the wisdom from God's faithfulness in past generations. Victims who now take for granted things that need to be questioned, thus treating as divine absolutes patterns of belief and behavior that should be seen as human, provisional, and relative. We are all beneficiaries of good, wise, and sound tradition and victims of poor, unwise, and unsound traditions. And some of the hardest traditions to change are religious ones because what happens in a church sometimes is we falsely insist that God was the one who ordained the tradition that we are holding on to. And so we say, well, this tradition is God-ordained. Let me give you an example. In some churches... They believe, I think, that Jesus sang out of the Baptist hymnal. That, that he had to be using the Baptist hymnal. We can't, we can't sing any other song unless it's in the Baptist hymnal. It's gotta be a hymn. Yet, we got some hymns in our Baptist hymnal that aren't that theologically sound. This doesn't matter, him. In fact, I read that we are to sing a new song unto the Lord. It's a tradition. So, well, this is this is the way we've always done it. This is what we like to do. If you are defending your tradition by this is the way we've always done it, that is the wrong defense to do anything. Unless you can defend it on this is what the Bible says. And this was the church. This was the Hebrew church. This is where the Jews were. They were correct in their belief that God ordained in His covenant with Moses the practices of the Mosaic law before the time of Christ the law was a part of their culture. Their whole lives focused around the Sabbath and the yearly feast. The priests and the Levites oversaw the worship at the temple. They had sacrifices and rules for their ceremonial cleansings that they had to go through, which were all spelled out for them in the law. 
And so they could actually point to the law and say, look, this is what we are supposed to do. All of these traditions were entrenched in their way of life. It was simply how they lived. It was how they did things. This was all part of the old covenant. By following it, it meant that they would be closer to God. And therefore, they took the practice of these traditions very seriously. In fact, so seriously that you risked your life if you even spoke out against the traditions that they were following. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, spoke against the traditions and it cost him his life. Paul spoke against them and was beaten because the Jews were so zealous for the law of God. And now we have here the author of Hebrews coming along and trying to convince Jewish Christians that the law and the Levitical priesthood that they had been following all along are obsolete because there is now a far better new covenant. To fall back into that old covenant did not mean that you're just going back into the old way of doing things. It meant that you were doing something that was no longer valid and that did not gain you any access to God whatsoever. Look at what he says about the law in verse 18. It is weak and useless. In verse 19, it made nothing perfect. For this reason, it must be set aside, is what he says in verse 18. The author is making it clear that Judaism and Christianity are not one and the same. You do not have the luxury of blending them together and calling them Good. You can't go back to the old Jewish way and call it good enough. Even if you go through suffering and pain and persecution, you must persevere because Jesus has provided a better hope. Now please understand that under the old covenant, God was far off. You did not have access to God. He is holy and we are sinful. We talked about that last week. The old system protected the people from God because sinful man could never enter the presence of a holy God. But now through the new covenant, we can draw near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest forever. This whole idea that is repeated over and over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews about drawing near to God is completely foreign to those who had a Jewish background. They didn't get, how is it that you can possibly draw near to God? The argument being made is simply this, that the new covenant and the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the old covenant and Levitical priesthood because they are perfect and provided a better hope and allow us to draw near to God. This argument is broken down into two main categories for us. In verses 11 through 14, we see the insufficiency of the law and Levitical priesthood to make anyone Perfect. In verses 15 through 19, we see the sufficient superiority of the new covenant and the priesthood of Jesus in the likeness of Melchizedek, enabling us to have a better hope, drawing near to God. So first, let's see the insufficiency of the law and the Levitical priesthood to make anyone perfect. Right from the beginning, the author is arguing that the old priesthood was insufficient. He starts off with, if perfection was attainable through the Levitical priesthood, then there would be no need for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek. This concept of perfection or being made perfect is an emphasis throughout the book of Hebrews. The idea here is not a perfection in the sense of no flaws or blemishes, but it is a condition of being made acceptable to God. 
The specialized meaning is actually to put someone in the position in which he can come or stand before God. The point is that the law can't make anyone acceptable to God, and this is emphasized throughout the book. However, what the law is not able to do, Christ did. Now the author of Hebrews uses three points to drive home the fact that the law and the Levitical priesthood are insufficient. First, he says, or we see that if the Levitical priesthood had been perfect, then there would be no need for a new priesthood. If this old system was perfect, then we wouldn't need a new priesthood. We get this directly from verse 11. This passage is not shocking to us. We don't read this and go, whoa, that blows my mind. But it was shocking to the Jew of the day. The Jews thought of the law of Moses and Levitical priesthoods as untouchable. It was the backbone of the Jewish society. God had established the priesthood through male heirs of the tribe of Levi. The priesthood was the basis for the law. Without the law, you did not have a sacrificial system. And if you did not have a sacrificial system, what would you need the priest for? You see, you broke the law. You had to go make a sacrifice. Meaning you had to go and see the priest. And even though the priests were central to the Mosaic system, they could not accomplish the task of being mediator between God and man for eternity. So they just constantly had to go. So I break the law. Sacrifice to the priest. Priest goes on my behalf. I break the law. Sacrifice to the priest. Priest goes on my behalf. I break the law. Sacrifice to the priest. Sacrifice to God through the priest. Priest goes on my behalf. That's, that's what I did over and over and over and over again. In fact, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, then when, why would Israel be looking for a high priest? The answer is they wouldn't. The very concept of having a Levitical priesthood is a demonstration that it is not sufficient, and that is the argument being made. If it could achieve perfection, there would be no need for a new one to come. There would have been no need to have Melchizedek appear way back there in Genesis chapter 14. And the reference to Psalm 110 would be meaningless. You see, the author is anticipating objections to what he is saying. Because someone could say that the Levitical priesthood has functioned for centuries without any issues. We've done this all along. This is, this is just what we do. And furthermore, it was not established until 500 years after Melchizedek. So how can anyone say that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood? We've been doing it all this time. It's what we do. Why do you do it? Oh, I don't know, it's just what we do. This is why the author quotes Psalm 110. Now Psalm 110 was written by David during the Levitical priesthood, and Psalm 110, which is why we call this a Messianic psalm, it's talking about Jesus. In that psalm, David speaks of one who will sit at the right hand of God, and he writes this, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So here's the argument. If the Levitical priesthood and the law were sufficient, then why would God predict through David, during the Levitical priesthood, a new priest, 
according to the order of Melchizedek. If somehow an earthly priest could make man perfect before God, there would never have been a need for God to make that promise in Psalm 110. But there is a need. Because no matter how often we see God through an earthly means, they can never make us perfect. We desperately need a perfect and eternal priest. And for this reason, God promised the perfect and eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, because the priesthood changed, the law must also change. Because the priesthood changed, the law must also change. That's what he says in verse 12. The Levitical priesthood and the Old Testament law were inseparably linked together as an administration of salvation. The priesthood, with its sacrifices which were made because the law was broken, was a means for sinful people to be reconciled to God. And so the author is saying a change in that priesthood demands a change in the law. In fact, it says there uh, is necessarily, is what he says, there is necessarily a change, which means the state of being absolutely required. And so he's saying is absolutely required that the law must change as well. So the author's telling them that the bedrock of their religion, the bedrock of their culture, which was the law of Moses, must be changed. He says, what you've been doing all this time, all these rules and laws that you've been following, the things that's a part of your complete culture, that the the traditions that you keep following must be changed. That was their tradition. It's what they did over and over and over again. How could you even possibly talk to them about changing the law? Because the law and the ministry of the priesthood are so closely linked together that if the ministry of the priesthood changes, the law must change. Now, we can't pass this passage up without talking about the law theologically. And how are we, as New Covenant believers, how are we supposed to relate to the Old Covenant law? You ever hear someone say to you, well... That's in the Old Testament, so it doesn't apply to us today. You ever hear someone say that? That's in the Old Testament. That's Old Testament law. Sometimes they're really smart and they say, we're under grace. That's the Old Testament law. We're under grace. They might even use really big words if they're super theological. They might say, we are in the dispensation of grace. That's what people say. Should we obey the commandments of the Old Testament? There are several different views relating to this from those who hold to a theonomy view who would say the law applies very much to believers today. There are those that hold a dispensational view. They would say the law does not apply at all to us today. And then there's those that kind of hold a middle of the road view. I believe the most biblical and best view is to understand that the law can be divided into different parts. There is the civil law, which applies to Israel as a nation. There is the ceremonial law, which were dietary laws and laws like that. Then we have the moral law, which applies to all people at all times. 
So with that in mind, we say that the civil and ceremonial laws do not apply to us today, but the moral law does because it is a direct extension of the nature of God. Now let's keep in mind that Jesus, when he was asked about the commandments, Jesus narrowed it down to two. The first being, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, he said, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God covers the first four commandments, and loving your neighbor covers the last six. Now, I'm not get, uh, going to get into the fourth commandment and get into the difference between uh, a Sabbatarian and someone who is not a Sabbatarian. I will just say that the principle of the Sabbath does apply to us today, but we are not under the Sabbath laws. Now, with all that said, I want to be clear that the distinction between civil and ceremonial and moral law is a man-made distinction. It doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture. You don't read your Bible and go, oh, well, see, it says right here that this is a civil law. This It doesn't say that. We made that distinction to better put the laws into the categories that we see clearly defined. So, in other words, we can read a law such as don't eat shellfish, or don't wear garments of mixed fabrics, and we know that those laws are not rooted and grounded in the character of God. Otherwise, we're in trouble. Because I love shrimp. Okay? I love shellfish. And, but I know that that law is not rooted in the character of God. But we, but we're given to Israel to keep Israel separated as a nation, and because those laws are not rooted and grounded in God's character, it's not a violation of His character when He abrogates those laws and says these laws no longer apply because they're not rooted in His character. If, he, if they were rooted in His character and then He said these laws do not apply, that would be a violation of the character of God. However, there are laws that if God abrogated, it would violate His character because those laws are based on who He is. So if He then said, it's okay to have other gods and to worship other gods, that would be a violation of His character. And I say this just to help you be able to discern which laws continue and which do not continue. We, we should understand as Christians, okay, this law is rooted in the character of God. This law isn't. So when someone says, that doesn't apply to me today, you can say, wrong. It does. Like when somebody says, I'll give you an example. When somebody says, Jesus never spoke on homosexuality. Wrong. He said, marriage is between a man and a woman. He did speak on it. He made it clear. So when they try to use those excuses and say, well, that's ceremonial law. No, it's not. It's rooted in the character of God who created you. So we need to understand that. Regardless, the author is making it clear that the laws of the priesthood and sacrifices have been changed by Jesus Christ because He is not in the line of the Levitical priest. Therefore, the whole system of approaching God through the priest and those sacrifices has been abolished by God. They no longer exist. So the argument is that if the Levitical priesthood was perfect, then God would not have predicted that a new priesthood be established according to the order of Melchizedek. And because the priesthood changed, then the law must also change. And thirdly, we see this. There is a change in the order 
of priesthood. Look at what the author states. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, but he was from the tribe of Judah. As we've already stated previously, by law, the priest came from the tribe of Levi. No priest ever came from the tribe of Judah except Jesus. Also notice he says of Jesus, our Lord, a title he only uses two other times in the entire book of Hebrews. He's making it clear that Jesus is not just some human priest, but he is indeed our Lord. He is God in the flesh. The work of Christ is a threefold office. He is prophet, priest, and king. There are not two messiahs or three messiahs. Jesus is one person and he is both priest and the king after the order of Melchizedek. The old way of doing things is no more. One could not claim, well, this is how we've always done it. This is meant to serve as a warning to the Jewish church that they should not return back to Judaism and mix their Old Testament priestly rituals with Christianity because the two Do not mix. You can't go back to the old tradition of doing things because Christ has done away with the old tradition. This should serve as a warning to us as well when we're lured away in our lives, in our personal life, or in our church life by unbiblical promises of present day traditions. Tradition is not the standard church. It can never be the standard. We can never hold up the standard as a Christian of this is our tradition. Tradition can be good, but it can also be bad. We can never explain how, why, or what we are doing by tradition. God's eternal word is the standard. And we dare not go beyond God's word and we dare not fall short of God's word. And so the overall argument is the sufficiency, the sufficiency of the law and the biblical priesthood to make anyone perfect. So therefore, it makes no sense to return to Judaism. The author then moves on to this. The sufficiency or the sufficient superiority of the new covenant and the priesthood of Jesus in the likeness of Melchizedek, enabling us to have a better hope, drawing near to God. I know that's a super long point, but it's okay. I'm the pastor. I can do that. But um, the author is making a natural comparison from what is insufficient to what is sufficient, from what is inferior to what is superior. The qualification for the Levitical priesthood were external qualifications. For, Je- for Jesus, the qualification was internal. Again, the author breaks this down into three main categories for us. First, the priesthood of Jesus is sufficiently superior because it's based on an indestructible life. As I just shared, the qualifications of a Levitical priest were external qualifications. You know that there were 142 physical blemishes that could disqualify someone from being a Levitical priest. 142. I have no chance 
When a Levitical priest was ordained, it was an external display. They were clothed in priestly garments and they were purified with water, anointed with oil, marked with blood. After the ordination, he had to observe all of the special washings and anointing and hair cutting. I don't have a problem with that part. The whole thing was an external display. However, Jesus, like Melchizedek, had one qualification. And it was not an external qualification, but it was an internal qualification. Remember last week we talked about the author using the argument from silence, showing that the Genesis record seemed to indicate that Melchizedek had no beginning or ending to his life. This was a foreshadowing of Jesus, who is eternal. Now, when it says that he has an indestructible life, it is not saying that he never died, but it is saying that death could not hold him. His death, the death of Jesus Christ, was followed by a resurrection. So even though Jesus died, He rose again and He lives now as our High Priest forever. And there's nothing that can take Him from that office because it is eternal. And we have access to God through Jesus Christ forever. Now stop and think about this. He's our great High Priest forever. He is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. And when Jesus became a man, He was still eternal and experienced everything we experience, even death, and yet His life was not taken from Him, but He freely laid it down and He said He had authority to lay it down and take it back up again in John chapter 10, verse 17. And when he rose, he proved that he had an indestructible life and he now lives forever as our high priest. He is our perfect high priest. He intercedes on our behalf. Oh, Christian, that we would grasp that thought that God's Son, the Son of God, is interceding to God the Father on my behalf and on your behalf. How big does our ego have to be to think that Jesus does not understand what you're going through? Why do we have the, the thought in our head that our situation is somehow unique? It is self-centered to think that we are the exception to the understanding of Jesus Christ when we think that Jesus can't understand the problem that you're faced with or that Jesus somehow can't understand the suffering that you're going through or that Jesus somehow can't understand that the, that the things that you're uh, going through are, are maybe different than the usual things. To think that Jesus doesn't understand or comprehend what you're going through is an absolute foolish thought. His priesthood is sufficiently superior because it's based on the fact that he has an indestructible life. Hear me, Christian. Your problem is not beyond God's power. Don't you think for one moment that he doesn't understand what you're going through? Because on the basis of his power, he has an indestructible life. And he brings that very 
thing to our lives. He brings that very same power to you and I. Jesus is the answer to all of your problems. You don't need to look elsewhere. You don't need to look to someone else. You don't need to read a different book. He is the answer because His life is indestructible and He gives that very life to every believer because one day, yes, you will die, but there is coming a day when you will be resurrected and spend eternity with Him in heaven. He is sufficient for every problem that you face. But not only that, not only does He say, hey, Jesus is, is superior. The priesthood of Jesus is superior because it's based on indestructible life. But he says the Old Covenant and Levitical priesthood are set aside because they're weak and they're useless. And he uses these two powerful words in verse 18, weak and useless. Before that, he says a former commandment is set aside. To set aside is actually a legal term that means to annul, which is officially or legally canceling something. The weakness and the uselessness is not saying the problem is with the law itself, but it is saying because the law still performs exactly what it's set out to do. Paul makes this clear when he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the weakness of our sinful flesh because we can't keep the law. We can't do it. One of the reasons that the law was instituted was to reveal the sinfulness of our heart. The law was never designed to bring people to God, but was designed to reveal our sinfulness, which is why the author says that the law makes nothing or made nothing perfect. The sacrifices that were prescribed by the law could, could cover sin, but it could never completely cleanse and take away sin. It just covered it up. The old covenant was an external working by the law. Therefore, the old covenant was not capable of empowering anyone to uphold their end of the relationship because it just covered our sin just covered up our sin issue it didn't remove it the new covenant on the other hand comes with the regeneration it comes with a new heart that transforms us into a new people eager to do the will of God the old covenant did not transform but the new covenant does transform. So when it says that the law is useless, that Greek word is disadvantageous, meaning it does not give any advantage or benefit. So it is not useless in the sense that we think of uselessness and the, thing, and the way that we understand it as no use at all, but in the sense that obeying it does not provide any ultimate eternal reward. So the law is used to condemn, but it can never be used to save. For affecting salvation, the law is useless. The law was never designed to save sinners. So where salvation is concerned, it's weak and useless. Which leads to the final aspect of the author's argument. And that's simply this. A better hope. A better hope. Stop and think with me for a moment. He's told these people that the old tradition of the Levitical priesthood was not going to make anyone perfect. If it could make you perfect, then there would be no need for Jesus because there is a new priesthood 
the law that they followed all along and their tradition must change. And then he shows how Jesus is superior to the old system, to the old tradition, and how the law and Levitical system is too weak to produce salvation in anyone. I mean, it's all depressing. Can you imagine? Maybe you have a tradition that you followed almost all your life. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, this tradition, it's useless. It's meaningless. What you think it's accomplishing, it's not. In fact, it's not getting you one step closer to God. Can you imagine? You'd probably want to punch someone in the face. That's what he says. All this is, it's useless. Why, why? Are we doing this? Why would anybody want to do this? And then mid verse 19. Here's all the negative. It's not accomplishing anything. You're not seeing anything from it. And then mid verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. What's the better hope? Jesus. He is the guarantee of a better covenant. We'll look at that in more detail next week. Here's the point. If the law can't bring us closer to God, if we can't somehow work ourselves closer to God, then what is the use? There's a better hope. And that, and what is that hope? It is the hope of our perfect and eternal priest, Jesus Christ. Here is a beauty. Yes, our high priest entered the Holy of Holies by his own blood. Yes, he bought and purchased us. But I think sometimes we miss the point that he is a living high priest, not a dead high priest. He works in our lives as a living high priest. This is what separates us from all others. This is why we reject Roman Catholicism. When they take a mass, it is a picture of Christ still crucified over and over and over and over again in an ongoing sacrifice in their minds. He is not a priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is why his body is still on the cross in the Roman Catholic Church because he is still being crucified. But we believe that Jesus now is in heaven and he is our he is our priest, not in the order of the Levitical priesthood, but after the order of Melchizedek. A priest forever. He's interceding on our behalf. He's no longer on the cross. He's no longer dying. But instead, He already died and He rose again and He's exalted and glorified at the right hand of the Father. And He offers a better hope because He's the one who conquered death in the grave forever. As a living high priest, He restores us and He leads us and He empowers us to a newness of life. Man, church, that's the difference. The beauty of it is our life is not about an outward performance. It's not. It's about drawing near to God by the Holy Spirit. We don't come to God through some sort of eternal law or external law, but we have a living relationship with Jesus. He is a better hope. Over and over again, the author of Hebrews uses the word better. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than sacrifice. The new covenant is better. Has better promises. 
Christians have a better possession. Men of faith sought a better heavenly place. We receive a better resurrection. God has provided something better for us. And we have a better hope. If you could have something better, why in the world would you want to go back to something worse? If you're living in some run-down, beat-up shack your entire life, I mean, it's just falling apart. And someone comes to you and gives you a mansion. They pay for everything. All bills are paid. Everything's taken care of. You don't have to worry about anything. So this is yours. You can have it. Everything's taken care of. Why would you want to go back to the shack? I mean, would you sit around in your mansion and remember the good old days in the shack? Would you do that? Oh, remember those good old days when we didn't have running water? We couldn't take a bath? Boy, those were the days. You wouldn't do that. Maybe that's what they were doing in the Hebrew church. Remember when we had it easy? They were missing sight of what they had in Christ, which is far better than anything they ever had in Judaism. Christian, hear me this morning. This is also our possession. We have something better. We have forgiveness of sin through Christ's sacrifice. We don't have to have someone else go into the Holy of Holies for us. We have a high priest who already did it. He went there by His own blood once and for all. And He invites us to draw near to the throne of God, which is the throne of grace, and receive His grace for our help in the time of need. Now perhaps we think, well, Pastor, all that's great, but I'm not tempted to go back to Judaism. So I really don't know how this sermon applies to me. And I believe that that's a fair question. I believe we should always be asking, how does this, this text apply to us? So let me make some application real quick to our lives. First, let's understand that there's nothing that is sufficient to save us except what Christ has already done. We should cherish that fact. That we can't make ourselves acceptable to God. And that we are made acceptable to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Every religion in the world except Christianity is spelled D-O. Because there's something that you have to do. You have to do something to gain God's acceptance. However, Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Because it's based on what Christ has done. And there is nothing that you can do. Even Roman Catholicism teaches that justification is through good works added to your faith in Christ to gain merit towards heaven. Yet Christianity teaches justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Apostle Paul has made it clear that our salvation is by God's grace apart from anything that I can do. He says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted 
as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then he says this, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Paul's not saying that we should then go out and sin so that grace would increase in our lives. He answers that, in fact, in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who, who died to sin still live in sin? This is why the gospel is so scandalous, church. Because, because you can't earn it. It's scandalous. It's by God's grace alone. And if you think that you can somehow come near to God through anything in yourself, then you don't understand the gospel. Because you can't. Secondly, I would say this in application. Make sure that you're drawing near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what I mean by that. Through our faith in Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit not to be lawbreakers, but to be law keepers. Through fellowship with God, through prayer, and through our love for Him, displayed by our obedience, as Christians, we must live with the understanding that we have a better hope. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. So, no matter the problem we face, no matter the suffering we face, no matter the pain we face, we have direct access to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So draw near to Him. Listen, I'm saying to you as a Christian, draw near to God. You see, you see, far too often we're just like they were in the Old Testament. We're just like they were. We look at someone else who seems so close to God and we sit back in awe of them. Have you ever done that? You see somebody that, boy, you, boy, that person sure is walking with God. And we are fascinated with other Christians, preachers, musicians. And we lift them up because they seem so close to God. And, and we have spiritual celebrities. And pastors do that. Boy, I sure wish I was Matt Chandler. I could be like six foot something and my arms would be way out here. and You know, I pastor a big church. We have these Christians. Oh, boy, they sure seem so close to God. But Christ brings you into the presence of God. You. You don't have to go through anyone. You don't have to get on the phone and say, Pastor, I need you to help me get into the presence of God. All you need is the blood of Jesus Christ. A Christian, when you're hurting, You're suffering. And you're in pain. You don't know where to turn. You don't know what to do. Don't know what life's going to give you next. Don't sit back and admire those close to God. You. Draw near to God. You 
are a child of God. You are an heir of God. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You have immediate access to the Father at any point, at any time, in any place. It doesn't matter. You have immediate access. And that's your privilege through Jesus Christ because He is our High Priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, draw near to God. I'll just ask you this morning as we close. Here in a minute we're going to sing a song. Maybe you'd say, Pastor, that, that message applied to me. Maybe you haven't trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. Maybe you're not relishing in the fact that it's through His blood only that allows you to get to heaven. If that's you, maybe maybe this morning you need to come and, and say, I need Christ as my Savior. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to shake your hand, talk to you, and we can, we can talk later. Or maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, Pastor, I'm not drawing near to God. Maybe you've sat back and for far too long you've admired everybody else that seems so close to God. Let me tell you something. God is ready for you to draw near to Him. I mean, all you got, it's, it's just there. It's through Jesus Christ. Don't admire everyone else. You draw near to God. You draw close to Him. And so maybe that's you and you don't have to come forward and say, Pastor, I need help. You can come and say, Hey, will you pray with me? I'm struggling. And I'll do that. You can wait around, talk to me later. We can do that. But if you felt like God has spoke to you this morning and you need to respond, then I just encourage you to do so this morning. I'll be standing down front. Let's close with a word of prayer.